Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. You have something in your mind that you want your paintings to look like, but all we have as painters is a flat piece of paper or a flat canvas and a few colors. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we talk with your favorite artists about how to get better at painting. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. This week, I'm talking with watercolors Julie Gilbert Pollard. In the conversation, you'll learn Pollard's favorite way to make her painting stronger, you'll get clarity on warms and cools, and you'll discover a framework for thinking through how to improve as an artist. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 25 for show notes. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. All right, here we go. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the podcast. You paint across several different media. So how did you find watercolor specifically? I started painting as a kid. And when you're a kid, you get crayons and then you you graduate to watercolor. They don't really give you oils. So that was what I always used until when I was about 12, I found my grandmother's oils. Uh, Her paintings looked like old master's paintings. So I just started using what she had, and she had been deceased for a few years, and so I I didn't know anything about them. If you aren't used to an opaque medium, it is harder at first, but then as you uh, get more serious with your art, you realize that watercolor is probably the hardest. Well, then for you with watercolor, you know, it was part of your life, but was there sort of a time where you realized, like, I want to take this seriously, like I want to become really good at it? You know, I always did, always. But life intervened. (laughs) Marriage, kids. So we did crafty things. You know, I always did something. But then when they got old enough, then I got real serious. When did the book writing and teaching part come in? It started with an article I wrote. Uh, It was right after my mother died, and I just didn't have the will to paint. I really grieved hard for my mother. But it was my job. I felt like it was my job. I had been taking it seriously for a number of years. So it just came to me that since I couldn't paint out of joy at that particular time, I would just try to delve into the technical aspects and explain how to do this or that or the other thing. And it kind of got me through that slump. And so the article that I wrote during that time and submitted to the artist magazine got picked up right away. So, you know, it took several years after that, just kind of evolved. And really, art is uh, a balance between thinking and feeling. So if I can't feel it, then I think it. You know, you have that vision in your head. And then especially when you're a beginner, it can be so frustrating to figure out how to sort of bridge that gap between the thing you see in your head and then the thing you see coming out under your hand. How did you work through that frustrating part of having a sophisticated vision, but then not being able to necessarily do that with your tools and materials and skill? Your skills have to catch up with your vision. 
everybody has a vision. If they want to paint, they've got something. And I don't mean vision in a, <laughs> a highfalutin manner, but you have something in your mind that you want your paintings to look like. But all we have as painters is a flat piece of paper or a flat canvas and a few colors. So it really does require learning all the tools, learning about the materials, learning about the techniques, learning about the process. Because if you have a beautiful technique and you don't know when to use it or where to use it, it's not going to do you any good. So it's kind of like comparing all the stuff to a can of worms and they're all tangled up and it's hard to pick one out and this one out and figure out how to then put it together to make something that is what you have in your mind's eye rather than all the stuff just all jumbled together because it can be pretty uh, overwhelming all the different parts that play a part in a painting especially with a medium like watercolor I would say it's true of all mediums but watercolor does have that reputation, for sure, because it's not as forgiving. Yeah, I was thinking about this before we jumped on the call, the opaque media versus watercolor, that when you put down an oil brush stroke, I guess unless you're working really, really wet with oil, like you sort of have an idea about what will happen. And same with acrylic. And then with watercolor, you may have an idea about what happens, but it may or may not do that, sort of depending on how much you understand moisture control and the complexities that come with watercolor. Absolutely. One of the similarities I talk about in my classes, because people get so frustrated, it won't do what I want it to do. <laughs> and I tell them, okay, think about this. Think about the difference between driving a car and driving a boat. A car could obviously skid out of control, but you do have a lot more control. Whereas a boat, you really have to learn the skills because that water is going to keep moving around and your paint is going to keep moving until the water in it dries. So we're going to transition into process. But first, could you talk about your reference? I'm a painter that paints from observation. So that doesn't mean that I don't change it or adapt it to my vision, but that means I need subject matter. So I get it from photos that I have taken or painting in plain air, which is a wonderful thing to do, but something I can't do as often as I would like. So I have numerous, numerous photos. And maybe it's procrastination. Maybe it's fear that I won't be able to paint this subject. For whatever reason, it's kind of like a ritual in a way that I seem to have to go through a couple hundred pictures <laughs> before I finally think, okay, this is the one for today. And I'm looking at these in my computer on a large screen because then you have light coming through it. And it takes you back to being there psychologically a little bit more. I want to be there. And once that's done, I carefully crop it and make sure it's as bright as I need it to be. Sometimes the shadows get lost. If you were there in person, your eye could probably see in the shadows but my camera can only see one exposure at a time. So the shadows might be really dense. And in Photoshop, I can usually lighten them up so I can see what's going on in, in the shadows. The more information, the better. Doesn't mean I'm gonna put it all in, but for me, the more, the better. In terms of your process, after you have your reference, what comes next? I usually do a sketch or two, a preliminary study, Sometimes I don't, but I always start my paintings with a sketch onto the watercolor paper. 
just so I know where all the parts are. And then the actual painting process could be wetting the whole paper and starting wet into wet, or it could be just starting to paint on dry paper or anything in between. So sometimes I will just randomly wet the paper rather than wetting the entire sheet and do kind of a random splashing and application of washes of color. Sometimes it's a little more specific, more like a block in to get the colors exactly where they belong, but with wet edges. And then going on value, light value, medium, and then the darks. But that process could change from painting to painting. My favorite technique actually is acrylic underpinnings which was the subject of my first article, as a matter of fact. But I like to find the darkest parts that help establish a value pattern and use golden fluid acrylics diluted to the point that they're just uh, staining the paper and put in those darks. And the benefit is that then you can do wet into wet or whatever you want on top of it, and it's not going to mix in with the subsequent layers so it won't create any mud. Now, if you did that with regular watercolor, you'd just get mud, unless you're just really careful not to swoosh them too much. And is that so that you you know kind of what you're working toward because you already have the darkest darks in, that you can build up toward that? Yeah, it locks in your value pattern. And it can simplify the later washes if you get the darks in the right place. When we do that in a workshop, I really stress that it needs to be very minimal because it'll get away from you like nobody's business and then you'll hate it. But it's a really valuable tool in my personal watercolor toolbox. So valuable, I want them to experience it in a successful way so they don't just throw it out and say, oh, I'm never going to try that again. It was horrible because that can happen. But it's a good tool. So when watercolor goes down on paper, do thin washes, like you can do thin paint over thin paint and it doesn't move around, but if you have a thick, dark color, you might physically move that around with subsequent washes in watercolor? Correct. Yeah, but it also depends on the paper that you're using. Some papers have a harder surface. For example, arches is a very tough paper. You can scrub it. But the colors do sink into it so that when you wash over it, you don't have that much chance of making brush marks. Whereas some paper, you have to really be gentle with the brush strokes because it could easily lift what's underneath and create brush strokes that you don't want. So there are, for example, papers that are more and more like that till you get up to something like Yupo, which I don't use. But I do love to paint watercolor on watercolor canvas. And when you do that, you have to be very careful because any brush strokes that you put over a previous layer of color makes another mark and can lift off what's underneath. But the acrylic underpinnings are really good for canvas, too, as a matter of fact. And just for our audience, uh, Yupo is a synthetic paper that's plastic, and so you can more or less plastic. And so it's non-porous, but it means that you can put um, a layer of watercolor on it and then basically wipe it up with water. So you can do really cool texture effects and all sorts of neat stuff, but it also can be really tricky because you will see every brushstroke potentially that you lay down because it's just all sitting on top. Also, heaven forbid, you sneeze. 
<laughs> it's allergy season here. I don't know. <laughs> You've talked about watercolor basics before, sort of offline when we chatted. What are the basics of watercolor? Well, I've kind of narrowed it down to nine. <laughs> Back to that can of worms we were talking about. So painting is basically visual problem solving. So you have this assortment of ingredients that go into it, and they consist of both hardware and software. The hardware, of course, is your paint, your brushes, your paper, the water, masking fluid, and other little items here and there that you might need. But all the rest is software. Stuff you need to learn in terms of handling the materials, what they do, getting comfortable with them. If you're a painter, you have to make shapes on a flat surface. So drawing and shape making is number one, in my opinion. So that doesn't necessarily mean drawing with a pencil. If you're not pencil-oriented, then you need to practice making shapes with blocks of color and value, whatever way that works for you. So I would say shape making is number one, after materials, of course, because you can't do anything without the materials. Then once you can make shapes, you have to be able to compose those shapes into a design to make a composition. Then, so negative space would be next in, on my list. You have to train your eye and your brain to be able to see negative shapes as well as positive shapes. That's a big one in watercolor and maybe the hardest thing for most people to learn. Almost all of us, you know, we see a flower, we see a dog, we see a person, we see a chair. And so you have to train your brain to think in negative space. If you're an oil painter, the whole canvas could be black, but you could still paint a white flower on top of it. But in watercolor, if we're talking about pure transparent watercolor, then you have to paint around a white shape. Then color and value. And I put those together because they go hand in hand. You need to understand how color works, color mixing, learn to see color as value light value, medium, dark. Then, of course, you need to learn to design with color so that the color leads the eye or at least harmonizes within the painting and doesn't look garish. And then, of course, understanding and learning to deal with the paper from dry to wet in relation to the moisture content of the paint from very diluted paint to very thick right out of the tube paint. That's critical in watercolor painting. The techniques, and a lot of people come to class and they think the technique is going to be number one. And as you can see on my list, it's, it's pretty far down because you can have a beautiful color and a beautiful technique, but if you don't know where to put it, which goes back to shape making and composition, it's not really going to do you too much good. But without techniques, then you might not have the other stuff. So it's kind of all jumbled together, but it's still way low on my list. And then process. You know, what do you do first? What do you do second? What do you do third, etc. And of course, we can't leave out hand-eye coordination. So if I say it's uh, hand-eye coordination, but it's really eye to brain to hand to brush. You've got to practice enough so that you can make that brush do what your eye is telling it to do. So there's a 
the chain. Those are what I consider the basics. Because without any one of those things, I wouldn't know how to paint anything. Well, what I love about that list is that as a beginner, sometimes the challenge of how do I get better? You know, like you're doing something and you don't know where the problem is happening. And what I love about this list is that you could almost have this next to where you're practicing and sort of be like, okay, where's my frustration falling? And using it sort of a little bit as a, a wayfinder of to figure out where to practice. That's a really good idea. Now, everyone has their own natural strengths and weaknesses. So somebody might just be really strong with drawing, but they put a brush in their hand and, oops, what is this thing? (laughs) Or vice versa. So figuring out where you're strong and where you're weak really does put you on the better path. Those strengths and weaknesses aren't an absolute. One day I might just be really strong with drawing by itself and then it could even be an hour later I pick up that pencil and it's like what is this strange object I'm holding in my hand I don't know what to do with it it's not cooperating and the same with paint the same with process it's sometimes everything clicks and other times you just sit there and say I don't know what to do (laughs) so when that happens (laughs) Uh, If I haven't done it as a preliminary study, if I've gotten into the painting and I guess I just felt it and I was just painting and being happy and all of a sudden, what on earth do I do now? I go back to, okay, what do you tell people in your classes? I tell them to do a preliminary study. (laughs) So I could be well into a painting and stop and say, okay, follow your own advice And nowadays, I do what I call a four-step sketch, which I have all the steps written down. So I don't have to be intuitive. I don't have to be creative. I don't have to wait for the muse or the right brain. I don't have to do any of that stuff. I go to one of the documents that I've created that I send via email to my students, and I just do what it says because I've already figured it out. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Just do it. Yeah. What is the four-step sketch and why is it important? It's my favorite thing nowadays because it really helps take away the fear and you can do it so quick that you're not investing time. I can't tell you the stacks of paintings I've got that I invested so much into and they didn't work out. And so I think that's part of the fear of getting started is you all the time you have ahead of you that you think might be wasted. So this is for painting from photos. It's also for plain air. It's great for plain air because it helps you to focus. Once you learn how to focus on one thing and just do it and then maintain the discipline to see it through, knowing that it's only going to take 20 minutes, then you can do it. So it has to be small. Eight by 10 is the largest it should be. So you look at the subject and you find the largest, most important shapes, which all the experts tell us that's what we have to do anyway. So if I'm working from a photo and I don't automatically see those shapes, I'm having, you know, the muse vanished and I'm on my own. (laughs) I just take a pencil and put it right on the photograph and trace the big shapes. That puts it in my head. 
if I'm painting in plain air, I take a pencil or my finger or whatever and stick it out in the air <laughs> and trace it in the air. Whatever it takes to build up some muscle memory and visual memory of those shapes. And those simple shapes are the only shapes that are going to go on that paper. It doesn't even take two minutes to do it because it's that simple. Now, it's easier to see that squirrel and start going off on you know, some journey of making that little twig just so, etc. But no, no, no. I've, if I start doing that, I say, nope, stop right now. Stop it. <laughs> so after you've found your biggest shapes, what's next? Put the simple shapes down, and as soon as that's done, then the lightest lights. So I look at the scene, and I evaluate the lightest light in the big picture, which if I'm looking at a sky, it could be a white cloud. If I'm painting water and rocks, it might be the white, uh, the white water at the bottom of the waterfall. Whatever is the lightest light, and of course I paint around that. Everything else other than that white is going to get a light value. So that means paint that is very, very diluted. So once you've identified the white and you're just going to stay out of it, you don't have to worry about anything else because we're working light to dark, which is traditional watercolor. So it's a, even a good thing to have a light underpainting for the subsequent washes because in the subsequent washes, even if we're talking about a real painting, it's kind of nice to see something show through that is a color and not just a white paper, unless it's meant to be white as in a white flower or something like that. Then the next step would be the mediums, which is the bulk of my paintings. It's not true for everybody. Everybody is going to uh, see the scene through their own personal vision. For me, it's the bulk being medium values. So I spend a little more time with the medium values. That means less water, more paint. And then those final two painting steps, I use a three-quarter inch flat brush, not a cute little pointed brush, which narrows your vision down to the details, which is true of almost everybody I've watched in my classes. I see them pick up a round brush, and I, I know what's going to happen. And it does. Until you train yourself not to do that, it happens. And even after painting all this time, it happens to me too. So wide flat brush, and I just put the values where I see them, not worrying about anything at this point except not putting medium values where it's supposed to be light. And then, of course, the final stage is the darks, and I will stick with the flat brush through that, but sometimes I will pick up a round for the final darks because they are smaller. It's harder to get a wide brush to go where you want it to go if it's going to be a small space. But if I start getting picky with it, then I put the round brush down and pick up the flat again. And I have to continually remind myself, this is not your painting. This is not your... Because <laughs> your, your mind just starts going off and, oh, well, let's see, how can I create this atmosphere? How can I do this? But that's not the purpose of this particular study. The purpose of this particular study is that our objective is to simplify several critical aspects. Simplification in terms of drawing and composition, largest, you know, most important shapes only. Process, 
that traditional light to dark at its most basic and values learning to see and separate into three basic values. So when I get into what I call the real painting later, I will elaborate on this a little bit, usually a lot. So this sketch takes maybe 20 minutes, sometimes less, sometimes a little bit more if I don't really school my thoughts with the discipline to just do that. And it, it, that seems like it'd be so easy, but you start doing it, you find out it's really hard, that focus. So it also helps teach you focus. But when I get into the real painting, I kind of follow those same steps, only with a lot more nuance. And when I'm doing the sketch, I'll make mental notes. For example, that shape, it's not working in the sketch. It doesn't matter for the sketch because it's not my painting. But I'm making a mental note to do a better drawing when I go to the real painting. Whatever I see that is not working in the sketch, I'm making notes to myself to work on that later. And then the real painting, you know, then we use technique. So the four-step sketch is really no technique. It's just putting the values in the right shapes where they go. But in a real painting, I want to get more creative with color. I might use techniques such as sprinkling a little salt here and there for pretty texture. I don't use masking fluid very often, but there might be a, a place where I feel like I really want to make sure that I save that white. So maybe masking fluid techniques such as splattering. There's just a whole bunch of things that you do in a painting to create the atmosphere or whatever it is that's in your vision that you're trying to create. And that's not what this little sketch is about. So for that four-step sketch, drawing light mid-dark, for example, you would basically cover the whole thing in a light wash, saving your whites. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that light wash, you would put your mediums. And then on top of that, you would put your darks. That's right. Yes, we're putting the medium values right on top of the lights and then the darks right on top of the whole thing. So in my classes, I quite often have true beginners and true advanced in the same class. So I explain this fourth step as being a preliminary study to the people who are advanced because most advanced painters already know the advantage of doing a preliminary study. The masters did them. Everybody who knows something about art knows that it's tried and true. You know, it's a time-honored thing to do. And then the beginners, I explained to them that this is also the most basic way to do a painting. These little studies actually do look like little basic paintings. So I tell them, this is your basic way to do a painting. You don't have to think of this as a tedious study. So they're really fun. There's something magical about when we lower our expectations. And so for a painting, it's like we all know it's a painting. Like, look at that big page. We think about the cost. I mean, it's hard not to, especially when you're beginning, because you're not totally sure if it will ever come out. And there's something so liberating about something that's deemed a study or a sketch because you don't go in with that same apprehensive because it's just a study. It's just a sketch. And then that can be so fun to do because you're painting without expectation and without that looming fear of, of 
just worrying that you're going to mess up something, quote unquote, um, important. And that can be great. Fear is really paralyzing. So when I teach this in class, I actually write the steps out on the board. So I say, you know, this is also your no thinking sketch. I've done all the thinking. All you have to do is look at the board. When you get confused, just look at what does that say? Do this. What does it say for number two? Do that. And so I've written it out so they don't have to think about it. And once you start painting, you know, the muse kind of starts to poke its head around the corner and say, oh, that looks like that might be fun. And so learning how that works on a simple, quick level, I think, carries in to the larger, more complex work as well. And so actually what I have written here is so similar to what you just said. I send this little handout out to them, and I tell them that I would just love for them to experience a sense of freedom that comes from not caring about the outcome, but just enjoying the process, and then allow some of that freedom to carry into the actual painting. Because fear is just, it'll just stop you in your tracks. So when I get into the middle of a painting and I haven't done that already, I'll stop and I'll do it and take a deep breath. Oh, I, I can do this after all. <laughs> it also gives you a sense of ability that, yeah, I can do that. Right. So you're actually setting yourself up like you do this preliminary sketch so that you have the confidence in the middle of the painting to be like, no, 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 don't worry. You've already thought about this. You've got this. Yeah. Keep going. But I also hasten to add there's never any guarantee. I could do a dozen of these and still get in trouble with a painting. But, you know, that's life. Sometimes things happen, especially with watercolor. And a lot of them you can recover and some you can't. How do you decide where to bring certain techniques? Do you, for example, look at a reference and something will strike you? And then you'll say like, okay, this tree is beautiful. I want it to be the star of the show. I'll add texture through salt here. Or... How do you think through how and where you'll use individual techniques? At this point, it's pretty intuitive. This is really a hard question to answer because it is intuitive, but it's because I've been doing it for so long. I don't know if this is appropriate to the question, but you've heard the analogy of painting to driving a car. First, you had, you know, all these gauges, the steering wheel, the clutch, if you're old as I am, <laughs> the brake, every, all of that stuff. And now it just comes naturally, right? Well, let's take that analogy a little further. So I know all that stuff now. I can drive a car. I can back out of my driveway. But once I'm on the highway, I don't know what's coming at me. I could get T-boned at the next intersection. Somebody could cut me off. I could run out of gas, <laughs> you know. You have to be prepared for a whole bunch of different things to happen. So if you have developed your skills over a period of time or experience or whatever it takes, because some people learn it quicker, some people slower, whatever it takes for you to get to the point where you have all those skills or your little toolbox of technique, process, preliminary studies you could fall back on, whatever those are, then it starts to become more automatic as long as the muse is sitting on your shoulder. When she takes powder, then you got to sit back and think it through. Okay, what technique would work here? you got to just figure it out. So it's always a balance between left brain, right brain, thinking, feeling. Well, we're going to transition into color a little bit. 
What's the biggest challenge you see your students facing when it comes to color? Well, I gave this a lot of thought. And really, the number one for watercolor is mud. That's a term that everybody uses. If you look at a watercolor and it looks muddy, it looks muddy. So mud is a combination of a couple of different things. Probably more than color, it's too many brush strokes all in the same place where you just noodled and noodled and noodled. But then it's also where the color has gotten dirty looking. Now don't confuse dirty looking color with neutral color or even a totally neutral color. If you see it, you know it, but it's hard to describe in words. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you've used too many colors, uh, because I've read that quite a few times in books, and people have said in uh, my classes, oh, my instructor said it's because too many colors. And that is true to a point. But if you know how to mix color, you can mix a whole bunch of colors together, and it still won't look like mud if you understand color. So I might mix five colors in one mixture, and sometimes it does look like mud, obviously. I But when it looks that way on my palette, I recognize it and adjust accordingly rather than just plow on with the mixture, even though it doesn't look right. You said that it could happen. So there's two places it can happen. It can happen on the paper with too many brush strokes, like the noodling, or it can happen in the palette. And you touched on this, but... What makes it happen in the palette? On a basic level, what does someone need to understand about mixing colors in the palette to avoid mud? Let's back up just a minute because the palette color is not as important as too many layers of colors on the paper, even if it's dried in between, you know, too many layers. Another thing occurred to me regarding mud. So We'll do color theory simplified in my classes, and then I'll be doing the demonstration. And they already know that red and green make a neutral, and yet they'll see me on the on the paper mixing colors that look like they should make mud. And they say, how did you do that? And I didn't even know. This question comes up every once in a while, and I don't know, maybe a year or so ago, somebody asked me that. And I said, well, I don't know. I just do this and this. So when I get those kinds of questions, it makes me step back and analyze what I did. And so I think one of those things that prevents mud is not overlapping the colors, at least overlapping them only on the edges of the washes. For example, I might be painting something with pinks and reds. And then there's some foliage that's green, and I didn't let it dry. I just keep painting. And they say, oh, if I did that, my red and my green would mix, and I would have neutral. Well, I just barely touch the brush. Let's say there's a pink down, and I put in green. I just barely touch the brush to the edge, so it still has a wet-into-wet appearance. But the colors only mix a little bit at the edge, so you still get that color vibrancy rather than a neutralized color. Now, neutrals aren't bad. They're good, too, but sometimes you don't want them. (laughs) So you just need to know how to get them and how to avoid them. And when I hear you use that pink to green example, you're not just talking about the color, but you're also talking about moisture control because you have a sense. You're not putting a big, sloppy, wet green down next to the red and it just rushes in. You know how much moisture you have in your brush and on your paper, so you can confidently lay that next and have a wet into wet. Good point. (laughs) A very good point. (laughs) 
watercolor. I love it. But man, there's so many variables. <laughs> there really are. Yeah. Okay. So just being aware, it sounds like saying be aware of what you're laying on top of each other. Because if you laid a green on top of a red, even after they've already dried, that will create mud. Right. You'll get an optical mixture. Okay. So there's two, there's optical mixing, which would be on top of each other. And then there's palette mixing. I would say physical mixing physical. versus optical mixing. Color can feel pretty overwhelming. Where does someone start with color? What I think is the most important thing to understand about color is that two primary colors make a brilliant secondary color. As long as there is none of the third primary color already in the other two primary colors. So, for example, there are a lot of different reds on the market, and they go from anywhere from a very orangey red to a very purpley red. So if you're trying to make orange and you're mixing red and yellow, if you're mixing yellow with a red that's a very purpley red, then there's a little blue in that mixture which makes it more neutral than if you were using a yellow that did not lean towards the blue and a red that did not lean towards the blue. So the minute you get a third primary into the mixture, the whole combination starts to neutralize, which is not good or bad. It's just what color does. So that's why it's really good to have a warmer and cooler version of your three primary colors on your palette. That gives you just almost uh, unlimited mixing options. Now, some colors have different qualities, such as granulating or transparent versus opaque, etc. It's not like ink, where, for example, our desktop printers use yellow, cyan, and magenta and black, and they can mix anything. Watercolor is not the same as ink. Even though some brands have colors that they label as primary cyan or primary blue, primary yellow, primary magenta, I've seen two brands in particular that I can think of right now where those primaries did not look like each other. <laughs> the reds weren't alike, the blues weren't alike, and the yellows weren't alike. So it's very difficult to find three primary colors that are true primaries that can mix anything in watercolor or oil too for that matter. So on my palette I have a warmer and cooler version of all three primaries, almost unlimited mixing ability. So what is warm and cool when it comes to color? When I presented in class and I explained that there are two definitions, the one is absolute and the one that we use the most often is relative. So we divide the color wheel into half. On one half of the color wheel, we have our warms. On the other half, we have our cools. On the warm side is yellow, orange, and red. On the cool side, we have green, blue, and purple. And then within each color, the relative warm and cool. So like a red would have a warm red and a cool red, even though it's on the warm side of the color wheel. Right, right. One really uh, good exercise to do that helps you understand is to actually have a circle on a piece of paper and have your colors arranged on that circle in terms of how they fall in, in nature. So it would go from a cooler yellow to a warmer yellow to orange to warm red, cooler red, 
purple, and the purple becomes bluer and bluer till it gets to blue, and then you start adding yellow, and it gets greener, and it just makes a full circle. How often do you just have a color wheel with you? Like, how often do you refer to a color wheel? Well, that's a good question, because, you know, in class, I have people do it. I have a sheet that I hand out for them to put their own colors in. And I tell them, just make sure you get the right color in the right box, and then do the mixtures according to the directions on the paper, and then keep it handy. And I have one that I keep in the back of a binder, because every once in a while, it's like, okay, what do I do now? What do I do now? Okay. <laughs> oh, look at the color wheel. <laughs> I, mean, I should know this stuff backwards and forwards, but sometimes logic goes out the window and you have to go, okay, what's the basic here? I know it. <laughs> Let's remind ourselves. What's <laughs> it's also pretty amazing to me just how a very subtle shift can cause a color to mix so differently in the sense of like, every once in a while, I'll add an orange to a blue, thinking that I'm going to neutralize it. And then I get a lavender or something that's just that it's amazing how just a little bit of a shift on that color wheel affects things like neutrals. Oh, I know. I don't really use recipes for colors too much. But uh, having said that, one of my favorite mixtures for grays would be cerulean blue and a warm red, which is slightly orange. So you think red and blue are going to make purple, but a little bit of orange in that warm red just makes this beautiful gray that's not totally gray. It has some life to it. How can someone get stronger with color? Like if they're just starting out, they've looked through the nine basics of watercolor and they realize that color is is where they're struggling. Is there anything you suggest to your students for how to strengthen their understanding of color? I really recommend a limited palette. A limited palette would be two yellows, two reds, two blues. As long as you've got a warmer and cooler version and colors that work well with each other, not all colors do. I've used the same palette for a long time because I know they work well together. So that's kind of, if you don't follow somebody who's already figured this out, and it's going to be some trial and error involved. But I recommend that. And even more helpful, or maybe in addition, not instead of, to limit your palette even further to one yellow, one red, and one blue. You can find colors that are very close to your printer's inks. For example, there's one painting that I did with just one of each of the primary colors. It was a rose. It's in my, it's in my book. And uh, I used Windsor Yellow, Quinacridone Rose, and uh, a very cool blue. It worked perfectly for this painting because I didn't need a really bright orange. If I had needed a really bright orange, that palette would not have worked out because that yellow is a cool yellow, meaning it's slightly green. And that red is a cool red, meaning it's slightly blue. So I did get some rusty oranges, which is just what I needed, so that was fine. But had I needed a really bright orange, that I would have had to adjust and gotten a different set of three colors. Also, I didn't really need a really vibrant purple. I got a nice purple, which was appropriate, but not as bright as I could have gotten had I had a blue that was a little warmer or redder. But for what I needed, it was fine. So you just learn that way if you just, you could arbitrarily select one of each of the primers and just see what happens. 
in addition to making your own visual notes, write it down. I mixed <laughs> this red with this yellow, and I got rusty brick color. Well, then you can analyze it. But sometimes you just don't remember those things. You think you're going to remember, and so write it down. I mean, I still am making color charts even now to see what this color does with this color. If I maybe didn't do that before, or it's a new color on my palette, or I just plain forgot. What I hear you saying is that if if someone has a super limited palette of three colors and they're not getting a bright color that they want, it might not be them. Like it might not be you, the painter. It might be literally the paints you're using can't make that bright color. Oh, right. Absolutely. Hmm. If you want bright green, don't mix ultramarine with yellow. Ultramarine is too red to mix a bright green. It makes beautiful olive greens. And color also depends on the brand because you could find three different brands of a color and they might say the same thing on the tube. They might even have that same identifying color number and visually they're different. For your paintings, how do you approach color? Two different ways. When I'm still in my left brain and the muse hasn't visited yet, I just look to see what's there and then I push it. Make it a little more so. If it's kind of a brown rock, you know, I push it towards orange. And then when I kind of get into the right brain and feeling more creative, then I just simply use color as value. So just because it's green doesn't mean that I will necessarily paint it green. If you use the right values, you can use pretty much any color scheme you want. You still need harmony. You still need some color harmony within the work, but your color scheme does not have to be realistic. How do you make sure you have color harmony in your painting? Dominance is a big one. Try to make sure you have a dominance of warm over cool or cool over warm. My brain doesn't always think that way. I think when it comes to color harmony it's a little more intuitive and when it doesn't work I go back and I analyze and I realize that I have too many colors and they're too disjointed and not enough dominance. How important do you think that is to if something almost especially when something doesn't work to when you're done instead of lighting it on fire and walking (laughs) away to actually sit down and try to figure out what went wrong? Well, I know it can be very therapeutic to just rip that thing to shreds. And so there's some benefit to that. I, I can see some value there. But it's also valuable to figure it out. That, okay, this is what happened. Or this is a series of events that happened. And try not to repeat them. So you really learn a lot more from your mistakes than you do from your successes if you can maintain the intestinal fortitude to see it through. And sometimes it's so hard. You just feel so disappointed in yourself. Like, I thought I could do better. What's wrong with me? (laughs) That's a rabbit hole we shouldn't go down. It can be so easy to sort of berate ourselves. How important is it to keep critique critique? How important is the mindset piece of painting, especially when learning to paint? I don't think it can be overstated. Because you just feel so disappointed. And sometimes you, on the surface, you might be disappointed with this darn brush. (laughs) That tube of paint was just crap. (laughs) But on a deeper level, something inside of you knows that it's something you did or didn't do. 
and you're so disappointed in yourself. And it's a terrible feeling. It really is. It's just awful. And I don't know. You just have to get through it. And just keep telling yourself, I'm learning and I'm enjoying it. Well, actually, that's the key. I just have to keep saying, telling myself I'd rather be doing this than anything else right now. So it didn't didn't work out and it may never work out again. But I'm going to just look at that color and watch how it moves and just enjoy it. And pretty soon, you know, you kind of, okay, this is fun. I'll do better next time. What does a reference photo need? Or just a reference? What does a reference need to make a good painting? So when I'm out taking pictures, if it appeals to me, I take a picture. I take so many pictures. So I always try to at least get one picture that's a good composition. Good composition means basically asymmetry. So you kind of have to fall in love with the subject matter and then kind of move your camera until you compose it into a realistic or doable composition that maybe you have to move a few things. And then a lot of backup pictures of other things that that one picture might not incorporate. Maybe a close-up of the rocks or the water or flowers. Or I just take a ton. Of course, that takes a lot of time to go through them later. And later you get back and you look at them and you think, well, why did I take that picture? So when you're out there taking pictures, you're looking at that scene through more than just your eyes. You're looking at it through your whole artistic mind. And so the longer I look at the pictures and I look at them on my computer, and the more I look at them, the more I start to kind of self back there and seeing it through the eyes I saw pictures through then. And then I can start to see compositions and start to kind of get into it. Where does someone start with composition? The biggest rule of composition is asymmetry. There's one book, it's such a good book, and I can't remember the title right now. He said the uh, one rule of composition is, and I paraphrase somewhat, make no two intervals the same. Greg Albert? I think it is. The Simple Secret to Better Painting by Greg Albert. So if you've got a tree... You know, if the interval of space between that tree and the side is the same on both sides, obviously that's not asymmetrical. So it's really hard to have everything different intervals, but little by little, you, your eye just picks it up. And make a, li- a checklist like you were talking about earlier of the basics. You can uh, make a checklist, avoid symmetry, avoid tangents where one object just touches the other, overlap instead of tangent, or spaces between. Try to create pathways. If you can see pathways in the picture, more the better. So if you are good with composition and design, you can basically take somebody's eye and lead them right through the painting. Just like, you know, leading a child by the hand. So I tell people to think of the eye pathways or the visual pathways in your painting. Think about them like stepping stones in a garden. If you're walking along stepping stones and all of a sudden there's a big gap between one stone and the next and you have to jump, that causes your eye to stop. If that's where you want your eye to stop, that might be what you want the viewer's eye to do too. But if you want the viewer's eye to keep going, You have to create links that encourage the eye to move around the painting the way you want it to. If you make pathways, I guess, how do you make a pathway? Could it be like a color? Like you have a bright color at the bottom left third, 
and then you repeat that bright color up a little bit, and then you repeat that bright color. I mean, is that what you mean? Mm-hmm. Well, pathways of color, value, shapes, all of the above. Another book on composition and design that I got years ago, and it's just falling apart, it's Frank Webb's book. It was originally published as Strengthen Your Paintings with Dynamic Composition through Northlight Publishers, and then reprinted later as Composition for the Painter. And the principles and elements of design are the focus of that book, and he gives you illustrations and shows how they're used. It's a wonderful book. So it sounds like for you, you're thinking about composition when you're taking the photograph, and then you think about it again when you're doing those sketches. Does how you think about it changes depending on where you are in the process? I can remember paintings where I had a focal point in mind, and as I painted it, that focal point shifted to another area of the painting, and I'm not happy when that happens, because I have to rethink everything. So I try to get my composition with a strong focal point to begin with, but there's just never any guarantee. That intersection is just might have a car that's going to come out of the blue and hit me right in the right broadside. Well, for your references then, like you think it's it's in the photo, that means I should paint it. So how important is simplification and how does someone decide how to simplify something? Well, simplification is so important. It's the reason I do the four-step sketch. Well, one of the reasons. I mean, it has multiple benefits, but I would say it's it's safe to say that a fussy painting with too much detail can often be a very weak painting. A painting that has stronger shapes, more of a point to it, is often a stronger painting overall. So simplifying is really, really important. And simple does not mean easy. It sounds like the same word almost. It's not at all. (laughs) Simple is so hard. So I go back to the four-step sketch. That's what I do. And I wish I'd known to do it years and years ago. I've only been doing it for about three years, not quite three years now. It's been called lots of different things, so it's really not new, but it's kind of new to me. If someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice would you give them? Well, a lot of practice and having those checklists something written out to fall back on because I think people think these paintings just magically come about because you're quote-unquote talented. Well, you might have some natural ability to make shapes, like you might have a natural ability to draw, or you might have a natural affinity for color, or whatever those pieces are that go into making a, a painting. You might have a natural affinity for one or more But you really need to study all of them so that they become natural to you and you become comfortable with them. So practice and then learning to be objective, which you had touched on earlier. So it's so easy to, on the one hand, say, oh, this is just awful. I have no talent. Why am I doing this? I'm a terrible person. And it just goes on and on and on until you just want to crawl in a little corner. On the opposite end of that, sometimes you just fall in love with it. Oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. Nobody could do this like I'm doing it. It's wonderful. And then you look at it later and, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? So 
learning to be objective and not see it as the worst thing you ever did or the best thing you ever did, but learning how to analyze it is a big key to improving. So I'm most encouraged by people in my classes who are kind of mid-road. They don't hate everything that they do, but on the other hand, they don't love everything they do. They, well, okay, this worked here. I could probably improve it. What? Give me a suggestion. And Objectivity is maybe not the answer somebody's looking for, but I think it's important, critical, really. How would you suggest to a student to analyze their work after they finished a piece? Well, I like to fall back on the principles and elements of design. So you can read uh, different lists and different books. seems like not everybody has the same exact list. So this is straight out of Frank Webb's book. He uses seven ideas and seven marks. So the principles basically are the ideas that guide and govern what you can actually do to this piece of paper. So the ideas or principles, his seven are unity, contrast, dominance, repetition, harmony, balance, and gradation. The elements, he calls them the marks, which other people call them marks as well. This is what you can actually physically do to that piece of paper. Line, shape, value, color, texture, size, and direction. So if you have these lists right in front of you, you can just go through them. Does this piece have unity? Does it have contrast? Does it have dominance? Your drawing skills, that would come under line and shape. You know, are they off? Is it too symmetrical or is it, you know, you can make your own checklist of things maybe that you find are your weaknesses and just go through it. And then eventually it becomes a gut level thing. Also, you know, look at your painting from a distance. Go across the room or take a picture of it and then you see it really tiny. Things jump out at you when you see it very small that you don't see when your nose is right up in it. Look at it upside down. Look at the painting after a space of a few days. You'll see things you didn't see when you were painting it. So there are a lot of tools that you can use. And if you write them down, then you don't have to remember. You can just, okay, I, gosh, I didn't look at that. That's what, I, that's what I need to do. And eventually it becomes more intuitive. You can find more about Julie Gilbert Pollard at her website, juliegilbertpollard.com, and on Facebook and Instagram. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Julie. Oh, thanks, Kelly. It's always fun to share my favorite subject. Thank you. Thanks for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 25 for show notes. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list to get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you like the show, consider supporting it through a small donation. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash support to learn more. Happy painting!